Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest Jason Sudeikis wanted to be a professional basketball player when he was a kid and was almost kind of sort of on his way to becoming one. A few years later, he wound up getting cast on Saturday Night Live. But between those ambitions, he dreamt of joining a different group. But I was also wanting to be a blue man at that point. Like, I was enamored with the show. Like, so my head was shaved. You know, like, I was, I was like, you know. Was that to... a requirement of the show? No. I just, I, you know, I just, mm-hmm. I think at that point, I had, I had short hair my whole life through basketball, <laughs> and then I grew it out. This was just like Jason Schwartzman wearing a blue blazer to his Rushmore exactly. audition. <laughs> yeah. Just making a, you know, I was going to, you know, dress for the job you want, right? It's bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk to aspiring Blue Man Group member Jason Sudeikis. He said his school basketball coach could see his potential, even back when he was a kid. And when I say see his potential, I mean see that his potential lay somewhere other than basketball. You know, he kind of knew that it wasn't going to last just because I didn't have the... It wasn't where my love was. My love was sort of shifting. He would make fun of me because I found speech and debate. Hey, how's that little acting thing going on? Then later I'll talk to the comedian Paul F. Tompkins. His TV show, No You Shut Up, sees him co-star and improvise with a cast of Jim Henson puppets. The difficulty in improvising with puppets is that their eyes are not real. (laughs) So you miss just a lot of the cues that people will give you that indicate, I'm going to jump in here, or you can tell that I am mad, or you can tell that I'm happy, or whatever. Plus, the author Sarah Val tells us why she wishes she'd made the Randy Newman song, The World Isn't Fair. And I'll tell you about the dumb, brilliant comedy sketch that's been stuck in my head for over 20 years. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. So Jason Sudeikis was a jock. He played basketball. He got as far as uh, playing in junior college before his grades got him booted from the team. He grew up in Kansas, outside Kansas City. He's handsome. He has fantastic hair. He's sitting across from me right now. I'm, I'm looking at it. Um, and uh, so when he turned to comedy, he slid very comfortably into uh, genial goofballs and handsome jerks that you still kind of like, sort of like a friendly Midwestern Chevy Chase. He was on Saturday Night Live for years. He starred in a number of huge movies like Horrible Bosses and We're the Millers. His latest films have been a bit more serious. In the dramedy Tumble Down, he plays a music journalist who falls in love with a musician's widow. In Race, he plays Larry Snyder, the slightly broken-down track coach who helped Jesse Owens become one of history's greatest Olympic champions. Snyder himself was a track champ, but he hurt himself and missed the Paris Olympics. In this scene, Owens is newly enrolled at Ohio State University, and Snyder has scouted him for track and field. You want to win a gold medal? Sure. Want to do it in Berlin? Well, I mean, unless you were planning on waiting. You know, I heard they don't care much for color folk over there. Well, they don't care for them much here in Columbus either. Is that going to be a problem? No, sir. I just came here to run. Well, then for the next 28 months, You're either in a classroom or you're on that track every hour, every day. 
And I don't care about your grades. I really don't. I don't care if your buddies have a keg they need help with, and I certainly don't care if you got a girl at home rolling down her silk stockings with that look in her eye. Do we have an understanding? Yes, sir. Good. All right, we'll go home, get some rest. 9 a.m. tomorrow, we'll see how good you really are. Jason Sedakis, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Nice to be here. It's so odd. I wish you would have done that intro before I got here. <laughs> uh, but, it, but you know, a number of those things appreciate it. Yeah. I, I am always interested. I mean, I'm usually looking at a piece of paper when I'm reading that introduction. Right. But often there often will play uh, a scene while the person's sitting here. And in this case, sorry to break the fourth wall radio audience, but mm-hmm. we didn't play that clip live. But often we'll play a, a scene from a film or, a you know, a, a sketch or a, a song. Mm-hmm. And I'm always impressed at the differences between the ways people react to sure. listening to their own I work. I would be the exact same, yeah. Like there are, there are stand-ups who, who mouth their bits along with the bits. I've, yep. We've had people in here who we played a song of theirs and they've just started singing it. Yeah, sure. Pavlovian response probably to the chords. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> How do you feel about watching yourself? Uh, not a fan. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I, at this point in my, the way I go about doing movies... Um, I, I don't watch playback. I'm never the person that's like, "Hey, what? Let's rewatch that." And me, you know, slapping the shoulder of the person next to me, go, "Look, you know, look what I just did." Um, but yeah, I, I, I sort of, I guess it's on the on the visual scale of of when you hear your own voice. You're kind of like, "Oh, that's what I sound like," or like you know, doing like a couple of the movies that you mentioned, you know, Tumble Down or, or, or Race, any any of the dramatic things. You you're, you're kind of like, "Oh, that's what my face looks like when I feel that way." You know, because I remember feeling it. <laughs> You know, but but for the most part, if I I feel like if I watch it like clocking my head to like the left by thirty degrees and then squinting, I'm I'm getting a more honest, you know, assessment of what's going on. That's interesting because you did you know uh, you did stage comedy for many years before Saturday Night Live, and of course Saturday mm-hmm. Night Live is live in front of an audience. Indeed. Um, and so I I think when you you get to kind of learn to feel in your body. The moves that hit a joke right, yeah, you know, the, totally. The whatever it is, whether it's a take with your face or your or your body or a mm-hmm. move, in, in it's a very kind of physical thing, but like performing a dance almost in a funny way. Absolutely. Um, but when you are acting dramatically, unless you're a dramatic actor from like before 1930, <laughs> um, maybe you are trying to you are less performing a dance and more trying to feel something yeah try to yeah you're just trying to exist in that moment and sort of have that that great judge to the right being the camera be like you know invisible to you we i used to talk when i did second city in las vegas we became very friendly with some uh of the new school shows there, like like de la guarda uh which was you know came and went a great show of uh argentinian acrobats blue man group was a big one um uh and then uh, cirque du soleil was the most popular but my buddies in blue man would talk about you know, when you're doing a show that many times. By the way, yeah. I would just like to point out that yeah. your tone of voice completely betrayed, like that you are that you are buddies with the Blue Man Group, <laughs> and their greatest enemy is Cirque du Soleil. <laughs> hey, these are this is this, this is the straight talk that that you're going to get on this show. Um, yeah, but peek behind the curtain in Vegas. Um, but they would talk about. You know, that's a very trippy show, and these guys were, a lot of them were amazing musicians, you know, like trained at Berkeley or, or, or wherever, you know, and they would be doing, having to hit the same notes every single, and and my friend Jeffrey would talk about how 
at a certain point, you can kind of feel like you're playing the audience. When I make when I do the silent gesture of tilting my head this way, and then uh, twelve hundred people of all you know races, Asians and uh, and persuasions laugh, you can't help but feel a little bit powerful. So I get it when you know when someone sells out Madison Square Garden, puts the puts the microphone out there and then people start singing, singing their lyrics back, that that person might be a little difficult to waiters and waitresses. You know? <laughs> I mean, I don't condone it, but at the same time, I'm kind of like, God, how could you not end up not feeling like the God complex that, that you know, we freaking want from our rock stars? So, so yeah, I definitely got in that, that position with, uh, with doing a show. at. Like, I even experimented with my facial hair. I was like, oh, if I have a goatee while doing eight shows a week at Second City in Las Vegas, people laugh at things differently. You know what I mean? Like, it, 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 like I, I tried to break it. I got so bored in the desert and yet had this amazing opportunity to, to, like, experiment and figure out myself and sort of figure out how to, you know, feel it instead of fake it. But I was also wanting to blue, be a blue man at that point. Like, I was enamored with the show. And I've spoken about this in, in, in other places. But, like, so my head was shaved. You know, like, I was, I was like, you know. Was that a requirement of the show? No, I just, I, you know, I just, mm-hmm. I think at that point I had, I had short hair my whole life through basketball, and then I grew it out. <laughs> this was rebellion. just like Jason Schwartzman wearing a blue blazer to his Rushmore exactly. audition. Yeah, just making a, you know, I was gonna, you know, dress for the job you want, right? <laughs> <laughs> I gotta get out of this highly respected comedy theater and into Shouldn't. the. Was it was part of the appeal that the kind of essential element of the performance of Blue Man Group is rigorously mechanized and anonymous that it was a hundred percent i mean I, that's something I've, I've spoken towards with friends i I wanted to be silent and anonymous like there was something about whatever i was feeling at that point and i really liked the way that the, that the biz that they were running their business you know um you know they were selling out we were doing shows for like seven people we we, we kind of came in there as a, as a theater company i think you know assuming that people were really going to want to see social political satire <laughs> instead of naked women and spectacle. And then, you know, but I Did had a, you literally you literally auditioned? I literally auditioned. I auditioned once when I first got to Chicago because the Blue Man was opening up there, but I couldn't do accented triplets. Uh, I know I, I had owned a drum kit, and uh, but I never played in a band or anything, so I had horrible rudiments and skill, you know, stick skills and all that. And then when, when the show in Vegas, the Second City one, was kind of like underwhelming and it was like a little frustrating, I, bec- I just was enamored with that show in De La Guarda. I just loved the how visceral both shows were um, and how it sort of got you out of your head and like into, into your body. I love going to watch them. I'd watch it from behind the band, you know, up in the loft. It was, I became a total, about as inside of a, of a outsider could be. And I had my drumming down, but then I got bald and blue and then they sort of taught you apart from the show. And then the, the, because of the drumming wasn't really in my bones yet at that point, the acting I found fairly, you know, I could accomplish that. A lot of times they hire musicians to teach them the acting parts and I was kind of coming in it you know, retrofitting that. And, uh, yeah, and it was never, it wasn't meant to be. I, I kind of like... Did you, like, look at yourself in the mirror in the yeah. outfit? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and crazy thing, I Had bought, you already been doing that at home? <laughs> I mean, making the faces a little bit. I, yeah, I, you know, but that's the way I was as a kid. Like, I feel like after, you know, I saw Karate Kid, I took karate lessons. After Color of Money, I, you know, Dad, let's go play pool. After Beverly Hills Cop, I want to be a black guy. Like, it was like, <laughs> so, I, like, it's, you know, I just, my way of getting into it was, like, all, all in. Um, but yeah, I, and then I just sort of blew it and then ended up going home and then, you know, tragically nine eleven happened, but that congealed our cast in, in my love for second city, uh, 
was reignited by the fact that we went from a nine-person rotating cast to five people, just a core group, and we put together a show that started getting this great word of mouth. And, and uh, we did our first sold-out shows, aside from when, the night we opened, on the evening of 9-11. You know, like, we did, we did shows because everybody was grounded, you know, whatever, whatever city that they were in. And so we all went in, like, a half hour early and took out any guns and, and any references that might have been irresponsible to play at that point in, you know, American history. And, and we, you know, made 150 people laugh two times that night. It was surreal, but, but um, really, really, um, really amazing. I'm Jesse Thorne. This is Bullseye. I'm talking to the actor Jason Sudeikis. He's one of the stars of the new movie Race. It's about Jesse Owens, the black track and field star who won four gold medals at the 1936 Olympics in Nazi Germany. Sudeikis plays his mentor and coach, Larry Snyder. No, coach. Look, I thought no. this through. Now, come on. You're going, okay? Trust me. Believe me. You're going. That's it. All right? You've worked too hard. All right? If you don't go over there, you're going to feel awful. All right? If you were to pull out now, you... Yeah, I know. I'll regret it for the rest of my life, yeah, right? Exactly. Yes, sir. And my wife, she'll walk out on me because she realizes what a loser I really am. And I'll probably end up drinking myself stupid and tell my coach he gets so sick of the sight of me that he gives me a job. You got a chance to be a part of history and you're going to walk away from it, huh? Throw it away? Look, I got people looking at me for an example. What do you mean, people? What people? Black people? Come on, I don't give a about any of that. Yeah, well, you're white. You don't have to. So I, I want to talk to you a little bit about, um, about sports because mm-hmm. race is... Uh, you know, race is a sports movie. And, sure. You know, you play an athlete and coach in it. Yep. Um, I, I know that you were a reasonably serious basketball player as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, what coaches that you had stick out the most in your mind? Yeah. Um, big one would have been Donnie Campbell, our high school basketball coach. I transferred schools. I went to an all-boys Jesuit school for one year and then moved to a public school. Um, and so they, they – uh, and they were getting a new coach, a new young coach, this, this 31-year-old man who I actually happened to have played pickup ball at this, like, athletic club that I used to go to. And I always liked him. He was a really funny guy, tall guy. But he, you know, in that first, you know, this was before he, you were not allowed to play as a team. Like, there's all these rules. I don't know if they, how much they've changed in the last, you know, 20 years. Oh, my God, 22 years. Um, but I was like uh, – we had this camp, and his one of the first things he said to me after watching a scrimmage, and he'd played against me at this at this athletic club where you're a little bit looser, you know, it's all pickup versus running set plays and stuff. He kind of came over to me and goes, "Jason, there's no reason, you know, I mean." And he kind of talked like Dr. Phil, but he's like, "Jason, there's no reason you can't be the best guard in this in this league, you know, best point guard in this league." And that kind of thing is not too dissimilar. It's one of the reasons I connected to this movie because, in like, I think you even see it in the trailer, like my character, you know, at least in the, you know the dramatization of the true story. Uh, says to Jesse, you know, hey, you want to run the Olympics? He's like, in Berlin? I hear they don't like people like me over there. Oh, they don't like you much here in Ohio either. It's like, is that a problem? It's like, and that, that's why he comes to mind when you ask me that question because it was like a mentor that put, I, I wrote that sentence down and I put it on, like, on my doorway, you know, like, and I don't think I did accomplish that, but um, for a number of other reasons, just being, a, you know, a teenager and that, and that girl breaking my heart and all those fun things that we go through, Romeo and Juliet style when our, with our first loves, and uh, you committed suicide? No, not exactly. No, okay. but I boy, But, you know, I, I think I think the good people, uh, you know, from uh, 
you know, Nirvana and various other, you know, and, and Frank Sinatra for, for giving me, uh, wait, allowing to wait. empathize. Nirvana and Frank Sinatra. <laughs> yeah, just those guys, you know, all the, all, all Italians, white, right? Just white people in general. <laughs> yeah, just, just, I, I had moved out of my hip hop phase by that point. I was like, you know, I was like, I'm not, you know, uh, you know, what do you do? Uh, but, it, but, it, you know, it, yeah, I, I sort of was like, this is, this, this is a bummer. And, and yet, uh, I love that he put that thought in my head because it's it's that thought where where you know personal change comes and a mentor sees something in you that you sometimes the baggage of your life of your human exposition disallows you to see for yourself in that moment and so while I ended up doing all right I really appreciate that in him now he rode me like crazy like it was it was a tumultuous relationship at the end of the day for for me at that time um, I, whether he looks back at it that way or not but but. I mean, my friend Brendan, who ended up, you know, who I mentioned earlier, ended up coaching in high school and stuff. He, his two philosophies were like, I don't, th- I think we would have won state if you didn't date that girl, <laughs> which was nice. We put it all on her, and then he was like, boy, coach, coach Campbell was really hard on you, and I think he should have been. But I was, you know, I, I started, you know, skipping class and stuff by the time I was a senior, uh, and you know, he suspended me the first game of my senior year, and uh, and then when I went, was going to go play in college. Even though it was just a community college, you know, he kind of had this like, you know, hey, well, we'll see how that goes. You know, he kind of knew that it wasn't going to last just because I didn't have the, it wasn't where my love was. My love was sort of shifting. He would make fun of me because I found speech and debate. Hey, how's that little acting thing going on? You know, he was he was kind of like, to a degree, you know, like the older brother kind of like, you know, he was from a small town in Kansas. And, you know, he's a great man and has done tremendous things. But just for me at that point, it was like, it was not the nurturing coach experience that I would have I would have needed and yet at the same time I did meet that person who's not a coach to a degree this woman Sally Shipley who taught uh, taught speech and debate and you you could let her in that so she was like a coach but she was the one that saw it was those two that sort of forged this oh basketball's fleeting but this other thing is something that I had a knack for um so your uncle is George Went, <laughs> and your uncle was there in Hollywood like being on Cheers. Yeah, I know. Yeah. The, like the most important television, like one of the eight most important television shows of all time. Agreed. Probably the most important television show on TV at the time. Yeah. I mean, they didn't know it at the time. You know, they had to struggle. You know, they were last place that first season, all that. But I, yeah, I'm with you. No, it's, it's, yeah. What was that like? Uh, I don't know. That's my question. What was that like? Yeah. It, I mean, it was, it was cool in the sense of, um, I remember, I remember in second grade, like he came, uh, he was second, yeah, or third grade, Miss Erlinson, he, he got to, he came to class to, to like, you know, to, to say hi, but like, you know, show and tell or something like that. And, you know, kids, kids didn't really watch the show, but, but it was like, you know, oh, wow. You know, my teacher was super jazzed about it. It was, it was neat to, to see, get to see some of the things I got to, I got to see, like, you know, going to like a comic relief basketball game in Detroit that he was a host of. So I got to meet like Magic Johnson, Isaiah Thomas. And as a, as like a, you know, 13 year old boy like that, that's really cool. But it was, it was, but then it came a point when I started to do this for, you know, choosing to do this for a living. The neatest thing was that he kind of kept my mom at bay and sort of being like not too dissimilar from, you know, uh, Sally Shipley and saying, hey, you could do this, or, or even Coach Campbell being like, you could be the, you know, the best point guard in this league. You know, it's all about working hard. But him saying to my mom, you know, he's actually got a knack for this. Like, if he stays with this, because at that point I was going to school less and less and, you know, eventually dropping out of college after I stopped, I stopped playing basketball. 
and living at home in my parents' basement, buying a drum kit instead of a car. You know, it's like they were like, oh, no, what is happening? And yet he'd, he'd be very supportive. And when he'd come through Kansas City, because he actually ended up going graduating from a college there, so he had ties to KC. And he'd come through and come, come watch a show. And, you know, the whole, you know, comedy sports was the name of the theater that I worked at there. And everybody would be very excited and like, like oh, my God, George Wynn's coming. And, and this was all post-Cheers, you know, but, but he was still, like, iconic in that show, obviously, as you said. said uh, and I agree, the iconic show that he just kind of, he didn't pull strings as much as, as embodied, like, like, the success of humility and hard work and so, sort of like this blue-collar, almost athletic approach to the work. Because he came out here, him and my Aunt Bernadette, they met at, at Second City, and she is, I believe, probably the... You know, incredibly funny, uh, uh, but probably the prettiest woman I feel, uh, having looked at so many of the photos of the great cast, prettiest woman ever do, you know, Second City. And so the fact that my Uncle George, someone with my with my DNA, you know, got to hook up with someone with her DNA, I was like, this place is amazing. <laughs> this place is a magical fairyland where, where, you know, guys like us can get, you know, can, you know, kiss gals like that. And I, I you know... They came out here, and then she she was the one that had the gig that brought him out here. And then he, you know, was on Alice, was on Taxi, was here. And then next thing you know, you know, Cheers came along, and and he he got that part. What was it like for you to live with the to live as an actual human being with the public narrative of your life? Because you know you um, you know you spent five years as like a front page of tabloids guy. What's it like to live with, um, to live both as like an actual human being in real life yeah. and as a, a story that people that you meet have heard? You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, I absolutely know what you mean. Um, yeah, it it's it's not great. It's not great, and, and my it it is about you know um, the, the gals. You know, it's it, I mean they follow Olivia. You know, like. They'll they'll be there whether I'm there or not. You know, uh, if anyone's there, it's usually um, because they thought she was going to be there, right? So, uh, and and yet, my, you know, the people that I'm friends with, whether it be like you know Jen Aniston, I, I see th- what people tend to forget be, is yes, you're seeing this photograph, but the madness that's going on on the other side of that photo, and and so like if you ever see a photo of us and. Um, we don't look happy. <laughs> it's because we aren't about what's going on in front of us, but not our lives. And we were probably smiling right before they popped out from behind. Because they hide. They, 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 I don't know why, but they hide behind, like, trash cans and mailboxes. Like, they're playing, you know, paintball. It's tough. It's tough. But, I mean, it's, 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 it's something that not just, not just people and, you know, actors and actresses and athletes and, and musicians get now. Like, it's... it's, it's it's a form of, of, of shaming. It's a form of sort of, you know, uh, using this giant bulletin board known as the Internet now to sort of put, put certain people in a box. And, yeah, the, those, those tabloids become like this, like a weekly yearbook, and you become part of a soap opera. And yet it's, I understand that, you know, how fortunate we are and how lucky we are, and that it just sort of comes with the, the, the but, but I don't, I try not to let it uh, anger me much anymore. Like, it's like, you know, you can pay to play, like, just about anywhere in this town uh, or in this business. Uh, but but it's like, what's your focus? Like, what, what's your intention? And so then that's where I just sort of had to keep coming back to that, where it's like, okay, I know I'm human. I know I'm not perfect. Uh, I don't mind other people knowing that. Um, and and, and this is, these are my personal philosophies. And I'm just, whether I speak them or not, but, but, but live them. I'll speak them to my little boy, you know, and to loved ones. Um, but... 
yeah, you, you just kind of like, you know, brush your shoulders off. You know, you just kind of turn off that noise. It's the same. It's, I, I don't know if you've seen the full movie yet, but I mean, there's so much of the, the of of like the philosophy that I sort of had about, you know, all these various things coming through my, you know, life that when I read the script, I was like, I know who this guy is. And, and, and to the point where even though there was nothing really about Larry Snyder out in the world, he's kind of a mystery. Um, the majority of it is, is all is, it, that we know about him is in the script. Uh, the, the, your character, Larry Snyder, yeah. is is really you know one of the there's there's real there's really two things that we see him teach Jesse Owens. Mm-hmm. One of them is uh, to start faster. Yep. The other one, the other one is to um, let go of everything that isn't you know putting one foot in front of the other. Yeah, yeah, both metaphorically and otherwise. Like yeah, that whole notion of him you know turn it's all noise. It's all rhetoric. It's all noise. Him, him, at least being man enough to say, I can't, I can't even imagine the situation that you're in. Him being pulled at that moment in time, not too dissimilar than like you know what Chris Rock had to go through, you know, you know, and probably still goes through, uh, you know, hosting the Oscars during during the, all this conversation about diversity, much less in America, but 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 specifically in the microcosm of Hollywood, like being pulled by the NAACP, being pulled by the you know the AOC, the the Ameri- you know you know, like just humans in general about like, you know, the, the Jewish community, like you don't go over there, don't go over there, don't you have to go over there, you know, like, and he's a young man who just was like, what? I just, ah, you know, and to the, to the film's credit, uh, I, I, it shows that, that anger, that petch, that petulance and, and that, that, um, you know, and I think Stefan does a great job portraying it, you know, but, but it's, it's, it's intense. But I, I shared those very similar philosophies to what Larry, you know, you know, mentors this character in, and it's like, you know, forget how we how and it felt organic when when that shift uh, to to the film happened, but I, I can't remember how where where that road went off. But it's okay, yeah. Jason. Hey, you know, I'll listen to the show and I'll be like, oh yeah, that's what and that's what I sound like. You sound gorgeous, by the way. You've got a little bit of a cold, and it's really brought a lot oh, of richness to those you. already dulcet tones. <laughs> Jason Sudeikis, thank you so much for talking to me on Bullseye. It was really great to get to talk to you. Gosh, that was great. Jason Sudeikis, he stars in the new movie Race alongside Stefan James. It's in theaters now. After a break, the writer and This American Life alum Sarah Vowell tells us why a Randy Newman song took the number one most played spot on her iPod. And I'll talk to comedian Paul F. Tompkins about his show, No You Shut Up. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from HBO Now, the new way to stream all of HBO with no TV package required. Get all the series, movies, docs, sports specials, and more. Download the HBO Now app on your favorite device to start your 30-day free trial instantly. If you like what we do on Bullseye, you should take a listen to Latino USA. Host Maria Hinojosa brings you interviews and stories with a fresh perspective. You'll hear from artists and immigrants and others who are changing the American landscape in this election year and every day. Find Latino USA now at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. I'm Jesse Thorne. This is Bullseye. We're about to hear from Sarah Val for our segment, I Wish I'd Made That. We ask our guests to pick a piece of culture that's so good, so perfect, that they wish they could have made it themselves. Sarah Val is a best-selling author who writes about American history. If you're listening to NPR right now, chances are good that you've heard her on This American Life, or maybe you've read Assassination Vacation or one of her other books. Her newest book is called Lafayette in the Somewhat United States. 
It's about the Marquis de Lafayette, a Frenchman who basically became George Washington's adopted son and fought in the Revolutionary War. Sarah's a historian, but she's also a former radio DJ and rock critic. So music has influenced her just as much as a lot of historical writing has. The thing that I'm always shooting for in my books is to have maybe the feeling or the impact or the tones of a Randy Newman album. Randy Newman, the way he writes about America and the tone he has, I really identify with because sometimes he's tongue-in-cheek. I like the way he can um, cloak his anger in humor. And I'm going to talk about the Randy Newman song, The World Isn't Fair. When Karl Marx was a boy, he took a hard look around. He saw people were starving all over the place while others were painting the town. <laughs> Remember when there were first iPods and the iPod could track the song that was your most played song? The World Isn't Fair was my most played song, which I don't want to, like, psychoanalyze that too much. It was on a record called Bad Love that came out in 1999. It was right around the time that I was switching jobs a little bit. Like, I had been a journalist for a few years, and I started writing more and more about American history, and it was right around the time, that time point, I thought, maybe I just want to write about American history. The song like my books, does not sound like a good idea when you hear it. <laughs> because, I mean, for one thing, it's two songs. The beginning is there's this expository opening about the moralistic aims of Karl Marx. Public-spirited boy became a public-spirited man. So he worked very hard and he read everything until he came up with a plan. This setup is so august, you know? No exploitation of the work of boys, kid. No discrimination because the color of your skin. No more private property would not be allowed. No one could rise too high. No one could sing too low. Or go under completely like some we all know. There's this plan to solve all these problems and to make life fair. The whole first part of the song is just Randy Newman saying, this is what Marx intended, and then him addressing Marx and saying, basically, buddy, you won't believe (laughs) what they did to your ideas. I mean, no one knows how many people died because of these ideas, but it's a minimum of 20 million people. Marx were living today. He'd be rolling around in his grave. And if I had him here in my mansion on the hill, I'd tell him a story that would give his old heart a chill. It's something that happened to me. And then the song takes this turn into this completely personal realm where Randy Newman tells Karl Marx what's happened to him. Karl, I recently stumbled into a new family The two little children in school where all little children should be He is an older gentleman, but he has this new family of these new little kids and a new wife, and he goes to the kids, like, you know, parent-teacher night. I went to the old 
temptation All the young mommies were there Carl, you never have seen such a glorious sight As these beautiful women arrayed for the night Just like countesses, empresses, movie stars and queens And they'd come there with men much like me Froggish men, unpleasant to see Were you to kiss one, Carl? Marry a prince would there be See, Carl, the world isn't fair It isn't and never Like, face it, the world isn't fair, you know? And it's just such a weird little example of why Karl Marx is wrong. And it's just so personal and so, like, out there. But he has a point. They tried out your plan and brought misery instead. If you'd seen how they worked it, you'd be glad you were dead. Just like I'm glad I'm living in the land of the free, where the rich just get richer and the poor you don't. Us, Carl, because we care that the world still isn't fair. There's something about these big historical figures that people put on pedestals, you know, Marx included. And there's something about, like, trying to bring them down to earth and bring them back to life, you know. And just the idea of this German theorist from the 19th century, like, if he really did show up at, you know, Randy Newman's kids' school in L.A., (laughs) like, what he would make of that. Randy Newman... He's kind of a siren, you know. He can, like, lure you into his lair. The way he uses his ever-slight twang and the way he's... When he's talking about Marx's plan, I think he says the way that they worked it. Like, he's some union boss, like, on the Mississippi or something. I mean, I talk that way, too. And, um the richness of that language I'm really attracted to. And I don't see that in a lot of more traditional historians. How does a song called The World Isn't Fair become the number one song on my iPod? Uh, I don't know, because I guess the world isn't fair. (laughs) I mean, the song, if you take it, like, if you extrapolate away from Marxism and the horrors of 20th century communism and the purges and the genocide, just generally, like, the idea of the song of being about how the world isn't fair is constantly applicable to one's life. Like, someone cuts in the line... It works then. Some old guy calls you sweetheart. Ooh, some young waitress calls you sweetheart. You know, any kind of thing like, hey, I'm a person of respect. (laughs) That happens if you, like, look younger than you are and sound younger than you are. I'm just guessing. Uh, That song, you can play it just, like, every time you leave the house. Sarah Val, talking about the thing she wishes she'd made, Randy Newman's song, The World Isn't Fair. In case you're wondering, she prefers the pared-down version of the song from his songbook album, so that's what we played here. 
Sarah's book is called Lafayette in the Somewhat United States. It's terrific. It's available now. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you stopped 100 comedy fans on the street in Los Angeles and asked them who the funniest person in the world was, I'd say like 30 or 40 of them would say Paul F. Tompkins. Now, I don't blame you if you haven't heard of Paul F. Tompkins. His TV show runs on Fusion, which you might not get. Uh, He's maybe best known uh, internationally for his work on Mr. Show, which mostly ran 15 years ago. His stand-up specials, which do run once in a while on Comedy Central. Um, Or his appearances on comedy podcasts, which aren't everybody's thing. His fame is pretty specific. But those 30 or 40 people who say he's the funniest person in the world, I am not prepared to argue with them. Uh, Paul's show is called No You Shut Up. It's like a cable news talk show. Paul's the host. But most of the guests are puppets created by Henson Alternative. The fourth season's just started. Here's a show opening from season three. Welcome to No You Shut Up. I'm Paul F. Tompkins. Later in the show, Undateable's Ron Funches will join us to talk about starting a war with Russia. And why are we putting a lump of coal in the Netherlands stocking? Here's a hint. It's probably because they're racist. But first, have you ever wondered why animals don't wear clothes? Obviously, it's because there are no animal clothing stores. Animals lack the patience to sit through a proper fitting. Also, as far as we know, animals don't have their own currency. It's always been this way, and it always will be. Or so it seemed. Recently, in Poland, Winnie the Pooh has been banned as a mascot of a Polish playground because of his lack of pants. According to the Polish councilman responsible for the ban, the bear doesn't have a complete wardrobe and is wholly inappropriate for children. Now, in nature, no bears wear pants. So is a bear only considered pantless if it's wearing a shirt? The Polish government has effectively made a ruling that equates bears with human beings, as far as pantslessness is concerned. It remains to be seen whether this will lead Poland to become the first country to condone human ursine marriage. We'll be following this story very closely. Watch this space. Paul F. Tompkins, uh, welcome back to Bullseye. Well, Jesse, thank you for having me, and I stand by everything in that clip. Oh, good. I'm glad. <laughs> I wouldn't want you to come on this show strictly to disavow the television show that you've been hosting for four years. Most people, when they hear their clips, they'll say, oh, that came out wrong. I disavow it, not me. Okay, good. And I'm also glad to see, uh, and I very much appreciate that you got the memo that all Bullseye guests heretofore, mm-hmm. and in fact, everyone in this recording studio is required to wear a country suit. Sure, of course. You even have uh, an odd waistcoat there. Yeah, <laughs> yes, I do. Well, the least I could do. When in Rome. Well managed. Brown in town is the motto <laughs> of MaximumFun.org. Um, Paul, how did you end up doing comedy with puppets? Uh, let's see. It was uh, random. It was a very random thing that happened to me. I got a, um, a call from uh, David Jabberbaum, who... Uh, uh, was a, a producer on The Daily Show for many years. And he had this uh, deal with a new network that was coming out called Fusion and said, um, and called me up and said, would you ever be interested in, in hosting a show, uh, a, a sort of meet the press style show where the pundits are uh, puppets from the Henson Company? And I said, this is intriguing for sure. And he laid out the show for me. And it sounded like fun. I said, "Yeah, let's do it." And it was a, it was, kind of a, a lark, and uh, ended up being my job. 
Uh, you see, now I feel like that is a question that someone brings to you. Uh, you normally would not have a prepared answer to that question. Like I can't imagine that you were <laughs> you had a planning meeting with your management team. <laughs> right. Like what things would and wouldn't we be interested in? Yeah, although there are certain people who are and this is not to say I am not a fan of uh the Henson puppets. There are certain people who are super duper fans of the Henson puppets and when I told them about this job were very jealous that I got to be around puppets a lot. <laughs> How what is it what is it like to do jokes with puppets it's a strange thing because uh uh and it takes some getting used to because there's a a lot of uh improv in the back and forth with the puppets i mean we are we are a scripted show and we have written jokes but there's a lot of uh embroidery around the edges and when we first started the first season was all improvised um it was a you know 15 minute show and the idea was we would have bullet points of topics we were going to talk about, but the the debate was all random and and uh, totally unscripted. And so um, I discovered very quickly the difficulty in improvising with puppets is that their eyes are not real. <laughs> so you miss a lot of conversational cues. You miss just a lot of the cues that people will give you that indicate – I'm going to jump in here or uh, my expression is changing and so you can tell that I am mad or you can tell that I'm happy or whatever. Um, that was a, that was a weird thing, an unexpected thing to adjust to. And then what was even stranger was when I did adjust to it and that the, the puppets became uh, fully formed characters to me. They became uh, real uh, sentient things as opposed to uh, I, I, I like was able to tune out the puppeteer and um, the puppet just became a living thing to me. That sounds just almost uh, scary. It is sometimes. I, I, I'm, I'm not joking. Honestly, it is sometimes it's I will have a moment of clarity while we're doing this and remember like, oh, that's not alive. <laughs> that thing is not real. It's materials that are sewn together to to look like a living thing, but it's not actually a living thing. It also puts you in the position of always being the straight man because there's no way. Yes and no. I mean, the, the, the way the show has developed, I would say in the first season, absolutely, I was the straight man. And then as it evolved over time, I think I have become just as much a weird character as the puppets are. And um, that in, in many ways is, uh, is a tribute to the puppeteers. The fact that they do become uh, – the puppets do become alive to me is because the, the puppeteers are so skilled. They are so talented and so funny that um, they just – we just became scene partners with each other. And uh, a, 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 a very natural back and forth developed. Let's hear a scene with a puppet from No You Shut Up, which is Paul F. Tompkins' show on the Fusion Network. And uh, so, so what, what you're about to hear is a scene where Paul is throwing to a puppet named Bigfoot, um, <laughs> who is a, a, a libertarian political analyst, but also uh, Jim Hence. Maybe you could describe roughly what he looks like, Paul. Bigfoot is is kind of scary looking. He's very intense. He has uh, he's covered with hair, except there's a kind of human face that's peeking out, um, and uh, he has very intense eyes. And he's very uh, very soft spoken, and um, there's always uh, an undercurrent of menace. I watched an episode last night where he was living on set in a tent. Yes, and that felt appropriate to the character. Yes, absolutely. 
Here with his predictions for the 2016 presidential race is libertarian hermit Bigfoot. Bigfoot, hello. Hello there, Paul. It's a pleasure to be back here again. So tell me, Bigfoot, based on your analysis, what can we expect in the 2016 election? Well, if you want my real opinion, Paul, which I'm pretty sure you don't, the answer is that nobody knows. All those charlatan Nate Silver-esque number crunchers are just plain full of squirrel scat, if you ask me. But what you want is a pie chart, right, Paul? I thought you had prepared let's give some him a, stuff. Let's give him a pie chart. Oh, look, here's one right here. Isn't that wonderful? Hmm, pie charts, pie charts, full of pie. Blueberry, blackberry, my oh my. Let's go back to my cave, Paul. Why, why, why are you singing? It's about politics, right? Let's do a little show for the people. Okay, you're clearly mocking your own segment, which is weird. I can see by your chart, 75% of voters that uh, cast a ballot were white, while only 3% were Asian. So what can we learn or decipher from that information? I think you can learn that 75% of the people that cast a ballot were white and 3% were Asian. We also just learned that you can read, Paul. <laughs> That's Victor Yared as Bigfoot, who is uh, uh, hilarious. That, I mean, uh, it seems to me like maybe one of the things about uh, having a TV show on a network that is new and finding its identity is that you can do a real weird thing. Yeah. we we The network has been great in, in giving us... Free creative control, free reign. Uh, very few notes uh, uh, ever come down, um, and they've been extremely supportive of of the the show that we want to make. And and um, you know when we expanded from you know a fifteen minute show to a full half hour, uh, you know a new head of uh, programming, um, Wade Beckett, uh, took over and and said to us, "Just make the show that you want to make." And I mean that's. Uh, that's the most amazing thing you can ever hear from somebody in charge, you know. And it's been um, it's been wonderful to to develop this show and expand it and um, and and push it and see how crazy we can get while still uh, making satirical points. It seems to me like part of the development of this show has, is that it has, to some extent, become more and more over these four years your show rather than a show that you're hosting, which is I, not to discount the war, the participation of anyone else on the show. No, course, absolutely. But. And I mean, I I am the human face of the show, and, and uh, uh, I do most of the talking. So um, I, I I hope that is the case. I it's it's difficult when you step into a thing um, that somebody else started. And uh, you are – I was kind of the last piece of the puzzle for the show. Um, to to feel like, uh, am I having any kind of effect on this? Is my sensibility uh, really uh, – is it really felt? Is it, is it helping? Is it, is it uh, you know, somehow uh, the guiding creative force, you know? And sometimes I feel that way and sometimes I don't. You know, it's, it's – um, it's it's difficult. If it were a thing that I built from the ground up, I think I would have uh, a 100 percent sense that, yes, this is this is me. I am I am uh, fueling this thing. But it is a strange uh, it is. A, it's a different animal altogether to to walk into a thing and then feel like, how much am I changing? How much am I influencing? You know, and, and you know, I, I I hope that uh, my sense of fun and my sense of satire and, and my desire to do comedy that um, has a point no matter what it is, either whether it's my stand-up or whether it's this, I feel like my thing always is, is there a point to all this? You know, um, So I, I hope that is the case. I'll finish my conversation with Paul F. Tompkins after a break. He'll talk about learning improv as a 40-something and getting back on stage with the team from Mr. Show. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR.
If you like what we do on Bullseye, you should take a listen to Latino USA. Host Maria Hinojosa brings you interviews and stories with a fresh perspective. You'll hear from artists and immigrants and others who are changing the American landscape in this election year and every day. Find Latino USA now at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. I'm Vince. And I'm Teresa. And we host the podcast One Bad Mother, a comedy podcast about parenting. Parenthood. It turns out it is very difficult, but we all get up every day and do it again. It's like the sign says, if you're going through hell, keep going. So join us each week as we strive for less judging and more laughing. Find us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts when your children aren't around. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Paul F. Tompkins, host of Fusion TV's No You Shut Up and the improvised comedy podcast Spontanea Nation. I want to play a little bit of my guest Paul F. Tompkins' stand-up. Uh, you just – Paul had a, a, a special that ran – uh, on TV called Crying and Driving, which is, um, you know, will will soon be out in other media, I'm sure. Um, let's take a listen. One thing you must know about me is that I am a married man, which to me is a miraculous fact. <laughs> I never thought that I would be married. Well, I, I, like not in my lifetime. <laughs> Maybe my children, my children's children, they'd see me married. But I'm very surprised and very delighted because I was uh, what you would call a late bloomer. It took me a while to get my personal act together because I am from a generation that had more choices than previous generations, and I think that delayed maturing. Like, my father's generation, the greatest generation, he fought in World War II. Here's how old that guy is. He's dead. <laughs> right? That's as old as it gets. <laughs> this generation, very different. Not a lot of choices. Here were the choices that you had. What everybody else was doing. The end. <laughs> um, so your voice on stage is and always has been, um, to some extent, I don't know exactly what the right word is, but maybe arch. Like, you're fond of making these sort of grand pronouncements. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I have a theatrical style, for sure. There you go. Yeah. And uh, I think that your most recent special was some of the most personal work that I've ever seen you for do. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And those things don't always, uh, you know, one doesn't always naturally follow the other. That personal work <laughs> doesn't always come from an arch and theatrical presentation. Mm -hmm. Um, and I wonder if it was a choice that you made to go down that road. Oh, yeah, definitely. It was um, – it, it, it followed my development as a person, I think, in, in that, uh, you know, my when I started out, my stand-up was very, um, uh, very conceptual. And it was not about me as a person at all. And you could divine, I guess, a, a certain – uh, sensibility from the stuff that I talked about or the way that I talked about it, but uh, y you would have to, you certainly have to do more work. I was not <laughs> laying it out for you. And then um, I, I I don't know I, I don't know if it was out of uh, I think it was out of restlessness. I, I'm a person who gets uh, restless creatively. I would say every few years I, I can do a thing uh, for a while, but then I 
when it starts to feel like a formula to me, when it starts to feel like, oh, here's what I do. I do uh, X, Y, and Z, and then it comes out this way. It, that, that Then I can't shake that idea. I can't shake that idea that I'm following a formula, and it becomes tiresome to me. And so I want to do something else. And so um, after the release of the second album, which I uh, felt really good about how uh, it, it – it, it, played with conventions and and I played with my own conventions I started to uh experiment on stage with telling stories from my own life and it was really I I I can't remember what the first what the impetus was to do that the very first time it was probably by virtue of of going up at uh Largo uh which is a theater here in town it used to be a little nightclub and I would do this comedy night once a month. And the idea was, it was not a rule, but the idea was um, you would bring new material, you know, uh, because a lot of the same uh, people would be in the audience and, and uh, they would want to hear new stuff. And, and uh, I really took that to heart. And so that was the beginning of me um, kind of talking about myself as myself on stage. And it was very satisfying because I, I felt that I felt the difference in, me sharing an emotional experience in a funny way, I could feel the connection that it was making with the audience. And it was uh, cathartic for me in a certain way. It was it was satisfying. It was cathartic. It was – I just I, – I so enjoyed that connection, that human connection that I was having with this room of strangers um, that I, I saw a value in it beyond just uh, professional. And personally, it was uh, it was very enjoyable for me. You know, it's funny that you connect this uh, both with creative restlessness and with sort of personal development, Mm -hmm. because it seems to me like a a lot of times uh, people who are interested in being funny Mm -hmm. and I'll you know, I'll include myself in there. you know, the performance, it, it's a lot easier to offer a performance that's separate from whatever you consider to be your essential self. Because that way, um, you know, the in funniness, the uh, feedback is so direct. Mm-hmm. It is either a laugh or not a laugh. Yeah. Uh, if it goes poorly, um, you don't feel as though you personally have been rejected. But at least that it's this one abstraction away from you, this thing that you created was re- Well... That's not true. Okay. If it goes poorly, you do feel like you personally have been rejected because because it's such a personal art form, you know. And whether you're doing whether you're doing stories from your own life or you're doing just abstract one-liners, you know, it's an expression of you. And even with the distance of a character or whatever, you are saying you are saying to the audience whether you are consciously thinking this or not. This is me, and I want you to like me because this thing is so much a part of me that I have to share it with you. Uh, this this expression of self, no matter what form it takes. So I think I mean I th- I think it's rare the comedian who can put that emotional distance. Uh, on on a bombing set and say, well, that's not an expression of me. That's they rejected the material that I was offering. Certainly not me, the human being. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to the comedian Paul F. Tompkins. His TV talk show, No You Shut Up, has returned for its fourth season. It's like Meet the Press if Meet the Press was hosted by a comedian and had a bunch of puppets. You started out as a stand-up in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. where you're from. 
And there could have been a career path for you. And I think you have the, you know, you have the talent and drive to have made this a success where you became a traditional club stand-up comic, yeah. um, which is a skill that's about substantially about like uh, uh, being able to figure out what's funny to a broad enough group of people that you can go into any place and get them to enjoy what you're doing. Yeah. You know, whether it's a corporate dinner or a, a comedy club full of tourists or a comedy club full of people that just got out of the football game or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an amazing skill. And that's all of comedy, really, is comedy is, is uh, to me, it's always an act of translation. It is how do I express this thing that made me laugh first inside my head? How do I translate this to a a group of strangers who have never been and will never be inside my head? And it's never going to be – it's never, ever going to be as fully realized as the emotional thought that you had, you know, of the thing that struck you as funny. Because that's – that's that's the divine spark or whatever. That's that's the thing that that luckily exists inside all of us. The the skill element is how do I make this still funny as close to the idea as I had as possible to, you know, as wide a group of people as possible. It seems to me like in coming to Los Angeles and getting involved in this uh world of uh what's often called alternative comedy um uh at the Largo where you still do regular shows. Uh, this club world and um, uh, the world of uh, comedy death ray and comedy bang bang Scott Ackerman's you know alternative world that eventually moved and became part of the upright citizens brigade world mm-hmm. you know um, and now that having been translated to a less fifty people sitting in a room in a particular geographic place audience and now that can be podcasts or whatever that you have the opportunity to do something that, um, you know, you can do that translation for people who have taken the first couple of steps themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and that seems like a really, that seems like a really special thing to me that, um, especially if you're going to try and do something that is scary or difficult or um, challenging to you or to the audience, that, there are ways to find an audience that wants to go there with you rather than an audience that's sitting there in a chair with their arms crossed like prove it. Well, the thing is, is that, uh, um, you know, the, the comedy club system uh, is 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 it's difficult because there are two separate businesses at work. There is. The comedian who is in the comedy business, who's in the entertainment business, and then there's the club, which is really in the restaurant business. And it's like, the, you know, the, the movie theaters make their money off of the concessions and, and the movie is the excuse to get people to come in and buy stuff. And um, it's the same thing with comedy clubs. And even though people are actively seeking out, you know, comedy and they're saying we want to see this, if it's if it's somebody in particular that they know – they're saying we know this name. We want to go see this guy. It is worth you know buying the two drinks and whatever. Um, the, but the the comedy club system thrives on, um, hey, we're giving away tickets. Why don't you come on in here and and uh, you will be charged for two drinks no matter what. You know maybe an appetizer or whatever. Um, and we don't care if you enjoy the show. <laughs> that's not that's not to say that there's not people that run comedy clubs that. 
that that do care, of course. That's the majority of them. But to a certain extent, you are playing second fiddle to the two drink minimum. And that was the thing that was that was always so frustrating for me in the clubs was that um you are you're getting people there's so much uh pressure on the comedian to win over people who are against you from the moment they walk in because they might have gotten free tickets and then they find out when they get to the club, like, oh, I got to buy – I don't want to buy two drinks here, you know. Um, and so they're in a bad mood, you know. It, it feels like they got tricked. Um, I haven't been in a comedy club in probably, I don't know, a good 10 years, something like that. It's been a long time and I, I've been playing little theaters, which I really enjoy because that's much more suited to my personality. Um, I like to be focused and I like to uh, – I like to be focused on what I'm doing and um, uh, not having to monitor the room for who's not paying attention, who's settling up their bill, who's you know doing whatever. People pulling out phones that's that's a problem no matter where you go. Um, but I I found the the club system I'd gotten all that I needed out of the club system that I I didn't need it anymore to to develop my um, my instincts and my skill set as a performer. Uh, dealing with the the weird things that happen in a comedy club or reading the room and you know but it's also like as you develop your style and your voice reading the room becomes uh less useful to a certain extent because um you know if you're if you're I only have the one act I have what I do and I can't say like oh time to pull out some uh, short, vulgar jokes because I'm losing these people. It's like, nope, this is this is it, you know. And there is um, – I think that it's fair to say there's club comedy, there's alt comedy, and we have an idea of what those things are. But then there's a larger umbrella of just comedy, you know. And then you're talking about performing comedy on television and you're talking about uh, uh, podcasting where it's really you can do whatever you want. And if, you've, if you have a, a – a highly enough developed skill set, it that's when it doesn't matter where you are and what your style is. You are good enough that you're reaching people. So if I do, if I record an hour special and it and it airs on Comedy Central, at that point it's beyond club comedy and alt comedy. It's just comedy, and people either like it or they don't. You know, it's either it it either captures their attention or it doesn't. And there's only so many. At a certain point, you get beyond like tricks or whatever. Like in your first five minutes, you have to have this, this, this. Here's the here's when you have to get your first big laugh. You know, like there's a lot of rules that people want to tell you, and I just found that so tedious after a while. You know, I I I I think that yeah, there are certain rules of thumb that are good to follow when you're starting out, when you're developing. But after a while, you got to throw out that rule book. You started improvising in your forties. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> there's often a divide between the worlds of improvised and stand-up comedy. Yeah. Uh, not least because uh, improvisers resent stand-up comics for getting paid. <laughs> um, uh, for getting barely paid. Yeah. Um, but you, you know, you, you had certainly acted and uh, done sketch comedy for most of your career. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, as I mentioned, one of the things you were best known for was uh, Mr. Show with Bob and David, a sketch comedy TV show. Um, but you only started improvising in the traditional sense maybe, what, five, six, seven years ago, something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. 
Maybe I maybe in the last four years, I would say. I, I and that's all because of podcasting. That's that's because of doing characters, which was a thing that I'd never really done before. Uh, but uh, uh, when Scott Ackerman started uh, the Comedy Bang Bang podcast uh, early on, he asked me to appear on the show. I was living in New York at the time, uh, hosting Best Week Ever, uh, show on VH1, and and he asked me to do it over the phone. Um, and uh, he said, you can be yourself, you can be a character. It never occurred to me to do a character. But I've been doing characters on the TV show. And I was like, well, sure, why don't I try that? That sounds like fun. And that opened up a whole new world for me of, of um, not just character work, but also the beginnings of my improv training. Because sustaining a character and, um, you know, yes-ending whatever is going on, whatever Scott is, is bringing me, um, and heightening it and uh, uh, keeping it going was really a crash course in in the the basics of improv, I would say. Um, and then after a while, I started to really from from that moment on, I started to really study uh, uh, you know the the people that would be on that show and and the shows that were happening at uh, the UCB uh, Ask Hat, you know, which is this amazing improv show that was started by. Um, uh, Amy Poehler, Matt Besser, Ian Robertson, Matt Walsh, uh, and that's the best improv you're ever going to see. The, those people, the people that participate in that show week in, week out, that is absolutely, to me, the height of improv because it's it's not just that it's good. It's that it's always funny. It's always funny, and it's not people cheating with gimmicks. You know, I'm sure that you know these guys have all been doing it long enough that they have a shorthand like, oh, I know what to do in the situation, but it's always funny. It's always people working to the top of their game. And um, I started to just absorb as much as I could by osmosis, by watching what they were doing, listening to people talk about it, about the 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 ideas of improv, how it works, and then deciding to kind of throw myself into the deep end and, and put myself in situations where I was working with great people. And if I could just keep up with what they were doing, I will have learned something, you know, um, a, a, a big experience for me, a huge experience for me was doing a show called uh, First Time with Khaki. This is Craig Kakowski, who people will recognize from um, Drunk History and Community. And uh, and he's just like a legendary uh, improviser and a great teacher. And he and I had uh, known each other for years from doing a show called The Thrilling Adventure Hour, which was a stage show here in L.A. that's also a podcast. And um, he was doing this show as part of an improv festival where – uh, the idea is just him and one other person that he's never improvised with before. And he said it could be anything. It could be, um, you know, we do short scenes or it could be uh, uh, a narrative that, you know, one story over the course of a half hour or whatever. And you could not ask for a better person to be thrown into that situation with because he is not just uh, an excellent improviser, but he really knows how to take care of people and – he can take anything that you give him and uh, make something with it. So I was in the situation where I could I could be screwing up all over the place and no one would ever know because he could make it OK. And it's like the uh, the, the tennis analogy of you, your your game gets better, the, the better your, your opponent is. And um, uh, that was such a great feeling. I was like, I just want to do more of this, you know, to have 
to have a new thing kind of late in my career, a new a new stimulating uh, art form. It's like this. Yes, I want more of this. And that led to me uh, creating a podcast that's all improvisation, you know. And again, like I've I consider myself still a student and I am getting the best people that I know um, at improv to uh, to improvise with so that I can and I, I learn something every single time. So much of the comedy world, um, at least the one that you know, I, I spend my time thinking about, traces its roots to uh, the Upright Citizens Brigade and Mr. Show, which mm-hmm. uh, on which you were a cast member, the HBO sketch comedy show of the uh, late '90s. And um, you recently did a new series of Mr. Show that was called With Bob and David. It was slightly, you know, I don't know if it was literally. It was all the people from Mr. Show doing a show, the title of which was the second part of the name of Mr. Show. (laughs) Right. Um, And I wonder what it was like for you as a, you know, person in your mid-40s to go out on stage and do sketch comedy with these uh, other men and women that you, you know, worked with as a young person. Yeah. And like, look out into the audience and see these generations of people who's the the biggest takeaway for me, and, and the most wonderful part of it all was when we did those live tapings, and I would look out in that audience, and I would see somebody like Lauren Lapkus, you know, who is I think just turned thirty, you know, and uh, so she would have been ten when when this show was first uh, on HBO. And to to feel that continuum, to feel that sense of community of, um, you know, here's somebody that uh, is still uh, coming up like an amazingly talented person who people are are uh, the world at large is just starting to get to know and that she would want to come see this, that she was a comedy fan. You know, that really made me feel so good. That really warmed my heart. And then. Also to look out and see, you know, people like uh, uh, Matt Gourley, you know, who's a, who's a dear friend of mine, but a guy that I met through podcasting, you know, that that um, uh, that this was a guy that I didn't know was in the audience at Largo when I was doing those those shows there when I was doing that, that weekly comedy show, um, you know, to, to feel like not just Mr. Show, but. Comedy itself has given me so much in my life and knowing that it's given all of these people something, too, that it, it's, um, you know, that it, that it's a thing that it's just out there. It's forever. It's it's you never know how it's going to uh, reach people, touch people, what it's going to mean to their lives. You know, it's like for me being in the audience for um, the first uh, kids in the hall reunion tour was so exciting. It was so exciting to me. It meant so much to me. And even though now we're all grown ups and we're all kind of the same age, but it was like these guys, this meant something to me when I was a world away, just starting out, you know, this world means so much to me. It has given me so much. It's given me everything, you know, and what an amazing journey this has been all because I, I loved comedy as a kid and I wanted to do it, you know, and it's given me so much more than I ever could have imagined. Well, Paul, thanks so much for taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was great to get to talk to you again. Thanks for having me, Jesse. 
Paul F. Tompkins' show, No You Shut Up, runs on the Fusion Network. He also hosts the very funny improvisation podcast, Spontanean Nation, with Paul F. Tompkins and uh, his upcoming stand-up special. Well, it's aired on television. There's some of it on the Comedy Central website, but uh, you can get it. You can purchase it later this year. Soon uh, is called Crying and Driving. Every week, we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's the Outshot. Everybody thinks that their era of Saturday Night Live is the best. I mean, the nature of making a 90-minute live sketch comedy TV show in a week is that there's going to be hits and misses. And as the years go by, I think the misses just kind of fade in our memories. I mean, I remember Wayne's World, and I remember Simon, but danged if I can remember what happened in between them. But I'm pretty sure that Saturday Night Live was at its best when I was 12. I'm not going to spend this time talking to you about how great Phil Hartman and Dana Carvey and Mike Myers are. That's easy. I want to tell you about the Saturday Night Live sketch that I love the most of any. It is from the mid-90s, when the show was basically a disaster area. It stars Mark McKinney, who was great and is great, but mostly known for The Kids in the Hall, which is a totally different show. His run on Saturday Night Live was completely unmemorable, and George Clooney is the other star of this sketch, but like lousy Batman George Clooney, not national treasure George Clooney. The sketch is called Tales of Fraud and Malfeasance in Railroad Hiring Practices. Jack Handy wrote this sketch. It's a job interview, classic sketch setup. And basically the only joke is this, uh, a job interviewee will agree to anything. And it is perfect. I've been uh, looking over your application, and uh, everything seems in order. I just have a few questions for you. Okay. Okay. Have you ever driven a train? Uh, no, sir. Do you think you could get in a train locomotive and just by moving the switches and levers at random make the train move down the track? Yes, sir. I believe I could. Mm-hmm. At a high rate of speed? I'd certainly give it a try, sir. Mm-hmm. And then do you think that you could stop the train, again, just by moving the levers at random? I believe so. Would you be willing to strike things that are on the track, like cars? That is no problem, sir. And after you stop the train, would you be willing to tell people you took the train without anybody's permission? Yes, sir. And start a fight? Uh, with who? Anybody that might be there. Uh, sure, I think I can handle that. No one can take this kind of plain talk and turn it into insane poetry like Jack Handy does. This came on TV when I was about 15. That's 20 years ago. And I don't think a week has gone by that I haven't thought about this sketch. When I got to college, I met a guy who also remembered this sketch, and we still work together 15 years later. This one dumb comedy sketch actually changed my life. Are you familiar with ants? I've seen them in the movies. Would you be willing to let ants bite you? Yep. (laughs) Yep, I think I could do that. Mm Mm-hmm. So how many ants would you let bite you? As many as it takes, sir. So thank you, Jack Handy and Mark McKinney and George Clooney. And thank you, Lorne Michaels, for being so desperate for material. You put this weird on network television. Seriously. The lot of you, you changed my life. That's my outshot. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones... 
Our producer is Julia Smith. Production fellow at Maximum Fun is Abadian Exparello. Our production assistant is Christian Duenas. Senior producer is Colin Anderson. All of our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our thanks to the Go team and their label Memphis Industries for our theme music. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And if you want to hear about more cool culture stuff, you can check out our sister podcast, Pop Rocket. It's a roundtable discussion of everything that's great in popular culture, hosted by the hilarious and insightful comedian Guy Branham. Pop Rocket. Find it wherever you download podcasts. Pop Rocket. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.